To begin, we remind our listeners that you can support Mormonland by going to patreon.com slash mormonland to make a donation. There you can access transcripts to our podcast. Again, that's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mormonland. You also can keep up with the latest happenings in and about the church via our newsletter. Just sign up at sltrib.com forward slash mormon hyphen land. Now for today's show. Thanks for joining us today on Mormonland, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm Managing Editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined again by Senior Religion Reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Earlier this month, an Associated Press investigation of several child sex abuse cases, including an especially horrific one in Arizona, revealed that the much-debated helpline supplied by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints force lay leaders failed to protect the victims. The expose brought responses of dismay, disgust, and anger from insiders and outsiders alike, and the reverberations are still being felt. AP journalist Michael Resendiz, who previously earned a Pulitzer Prize with the Boston Globe for uncovering the Roman Catholic Church's pattern of covering up clergy sex abuse while part of the team dramatized in the Oscar-winning film Spotlight, joins us today to talk about his story, how he came upon it, how he reported it, what he hopes it will bring, and how it compares to his previous reporting on this sensitive subject. He joins us today via Zoom. Michael, welcome. Thanks a lot. I'm really uh, happy to be here. So, Michael, let's start. How did you land upon this story? And did you know much about Latter-day Saints and their church before this? I knew a little bit, but I cannot say that I was an an expert in any way. But I generally read stories about the Mormon church uh, whenever I came across them in the newspapers, primarily because of my interest uh, in the Catholic Church. Uh, But I I knew something of the Mormon church, but not a great deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I got interested in this story when I read a small piece about the case in West Virginia. And it referred to these sealed records. And there were there were people quoted as kind of summarizing or trying to describe what was in the sealed records. And my thought was, well, why don't we get the records? You know, see what they see what they really say. Let's see what's in there. <clears throat> and uh, initially, I was talking with our attorney at the Associated Press. And we had this idea that we would file a motion to intervene in the case and in the public interest, meaning the the safety of children, we would try to have the seal uh, undone. We try to have the records unsealed. And and we did uh, contact an attorney in West Virginia who was going to do that for us. But I was making a lot of calls, uh, just as I normally would. And in the course of making those calls, I ran into someone who gave me the records. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of people who have these records, but I did run into someone who decided they were, they were just going to give me the records. And so at that point, I decided to just start reporting based on uh, the records that I had rather than get into a long drawn out legal process that we might win or lose. Mm-hmm. So um, how did you go about then reporting it, especially this Arizona case, which is just horrific? Well, I did have uh, a source in Arizona who told me about this case just as something very remarkable that was developing. And uh, I took a look at that as well. And um, gosh, you know, I've been doing these uh, institutional child sex abuse stories on and off for 20 years. And this seemed this seemed exceptional in a variety of ways, one of which was the just the degree of the abuse was so shocking and unfathomable that I 
I guess it grabbed my interest for that reason initially. But as I did more reporting, I found uh, a lot of people who wanted to help out, and I was able to get a lot of the the uh, crucial records uh, in that case as well. So in your article that you published, it presumes that the Arizona case is just the tip of the iceberg, that this is a pattern for the LDS Church. Do you know of or are you working on any other cases? Well, I don't think I ever said it was a pattern, but, um, you know, because of the Arizona case and the and the West Virginia case and uh, and some others that have been filed, uh, I thought it was interesting and important to uh, describe what I learned because the entire operation of the helpline and the reporting of child sex abuse cases to the church is enveloped uh, in secrecy. And it struck me that, you know, we have no idea how many reports are being made, how many of those reports are uh, referred to law enforcement. I, I would assume that quite a, quite a few are and how many are not. There's just no transparency whatsoever. So I thought that the thing to do is just to describe the process. And the process is that, you know, all called all the records of calls made to the helpline are destroyed uh, at the end of each day. And, um, you know, when there's a serious case and someone answering the call to the helpline refers it to an attorney with the law firm of Curtin McConkie, then those those uh, conversations, the church insists, are all covered by attorney client privilege. And then when you have a disciplinary proceeding, the, uh, you know, the folks, uh, those records are also uh, confidential. And so it just seems like it's a, it's kind of a locked box when it comes to allegations of child sex abuse in the Mormon church. And I thought, you know, this is a box that uh, in the interest of the safety of children uh, really needs to be pried open. And that was really the purpose of the story. I, I had a question quickly on the destroying of the records to the helpline. That seems like that could end up being problematic legally um, um, if the lawsuits filed and certainly lawsuits have and are being filed. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's troubling uh, to say the least. And I, I have to say, I didn't really get into this in the story, but uh, I found many instances where people associated with the church or members of the church were shredding documents or destroying documents uh, relating to child sex abuse or just destroying documents almost as a matter of course, almost as a like an unspoken policy. I mean, for instance, uh, Lisa Adams, who was uh, Paul Adams wife, um, uh, after federal agents uh, raided their home and seized uh, <clears throat> electronic devices with uh, uh, thousands of pornographic photographs and nearly a thousand videos, many of them featuring the Adams children. I mean, after all that, uh, according to her own testimony, she began shredding documents, uh, anything with her husband's name on it. And she had the assistance of a visiting teacher from the Mormon church. The two of them were shredding documents. And that's according to Lisa's own testimony. And also, I, you know, I, I just didn't have room for everything in the story. But, you know, I interviewed the older daughter, MJ, multiple times. And uh, she told me that she participated in the shredding of the documents that the kids did. And the kids just thought it was, it was like a party. It was like, you know, it was, they were just having fun, you know, <laughs> you know, or shredding documents, you know? So, uh, and, and in the, um, in the sealed records from West Virginia, there were many instances where, where bishops uh, said that they, they just, they, they, or, or not, or not just bishops, but uh, the clerks for various meetings uh, that the bishops would convene the church. The, these uh, clerks would say that just as a matter, they didn't keep the records. They just uh, destroyed them. And uh, it seemed to be um, like an unwritten, it was a practice 
if not uh, an unwritten policy. And I just uh, I just noted that that throughout my research, there seems to be many, many instances of destroyed records. In your reporting, did you come upon any instances in which the LDS Church's helpline actually helped the victims? You know, I'm sure there are many such instances. I mean, when I uh, I don't have any specifically, but when I interviewed uh, Bill Maladon, he's the uh, attorney, the Arizona attorney who's representing the Mormon Church in the Adams case. I mean, he he told me that um, there were in, there were hundreds of cases where calls to the helpline had been referred to law enforcement, and I you know I found that interesting, and I. I tried to get uh, him to, you know, put that information on the record, but the church considers all that confidential. So I, I said to him, and I did put that in my story that he that he said there were hundreds of instances. But I think what's relevant is, uh, it, you know, that's an isolated, um, what should I call it? Uh, if it is, it's an isolated data point. Uh, the other data point is how many calls are not referred, and then. And then what's the overall rate of referral? I mean, that's the only way to kind of make anything meaningful of that statement, I think. But I have I have no doubt uh, that there are many instances where uh, calls were reported to law enforcement. I mean, I guess I couldn't would surprise me, I guess, just as a as a as a human being and as a practical matter, if there were not cases that were referred to law enforcement. In its news release, the church complained, without pointing to any errors in the story, that your piece mischaracterized the nature and purpose of the church's helpline. What's your response to the church's response? Well, you know, uh, I I personally think I characterize the helpline better than it's ever been characterized before uh, for for, for a start. And... uh, you know what the I think I think what the church is referring to is I, I didn't uh, underscore what they always say about the helpline, which is that its purpose is to give bishops guidance when it comes to reporting child sex abuse and therefore uh, in that way help the victims uh, of child sex abuse. However, I, you know I did say and I quoted the church's policies from their handbook, so I, I thought that was a little disingenuous. And overall, though, there was nothing in the church's statement about the Arizona case. There was nothing in their statement about the sealed records from West Virginia. And of course, those two uh, subjects were really the drivers of the story. So I thought, if, well, if you're, you're going to put out a statement uh, criticizing my story and not point to any inaccuracies and not not address the major revelations in the story, well, what's the statement worth, you know? So what surprised you the most in your reporting this story? Well, I guess what surprised me the most and continues to surprise me to this day is that is that two bishops and uh, attorneys for the church in Salt Lake City could allow abuse of this nature uh, to go unreported for so long. I mean, I just, uh, I don't, as a human being, I find that difficult to understand. Now, what the church uh, says is that Bishop John Herod, who is the one who uh, heard Paul Adams reveal his abuse, that uh, he only learned it on, on one occasion and didn't know the abuse was ongoing. That's the church's position. However, um, the federal agents who interviewed uh, Bishop Herod recorded the interview, and I've listened to the recording, and I have a transcript of the interview, and it just seems to me that the context of their conversation was held as if 
the bishop knew the abuse was ongoing. For instance, uh, you know, the bishop was seeing uh, Paul Adams for counseling. So Paul Adams was coming in on a regular basis for counseling. This wasn't uh, was not a confession in the way that, say, people in the Catholic faith think of a confession, which is seeking forgiveness for a past bad act. Uh, this was ongoing counseling. And um, uh, at, at one point, the bishop called in Paul Adams's wife and 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 made him tell her about the abuse so she would know what was going on if she didn't already so that she could make some attempt to, to help protect their children. And at one point, he said, uh, as these counseling sessions continued, one of the purposes was to to see whether the abuse had stopped. And so it. As I said, the conversation between the federal agents and Bishop Herod uh, reads as though there was a, a knowledge that the abuse was ongoing. That is my interpretation of what was said during that recorded interview. Do you, do you think the Bishop Herod knew the extent of it? I mean, like you, I find it horrifying that any human wouldn't be horrified. Well, yes, of course. Uh, and, there, you know, there are, there are two indications that he he, he had a he had some idea of the extent of the abuse, and I'll tell you what they are. They're, they're, you know, Bishop Herod was also Lisa Adams' personal physician, and he told the federal agents that, in his view, she she met the definition of, uh, as he put it, battered battered woman syndrome. And when the when the when they discussed uh, the older daughter, the the, uh, uh, the the victim of Adams' abuse, uh, Bishop Herod said without any prompting from the federal agents, uh, something to the effect of, I don't think she'll ever be the same again. So it's it's pretty clear he had some idea that um, Lisa Adams was not capable of protecting her children and that the the older daughter had been severely damaged by it. And yet he uh, did nothing, really. It seems like we we have to ask this. Uh, How did what you discover in this case involving the LDS church compared to what the spotlight team exposed about the priest abuse scandal in and around Boston? Well, I mean, what we discovered in Boston, we had uh, the Catholic church does not destroy its records. And so we were able to, to get thousands and thousands of pages of internal records from the Boston archdiocese. Uh, and initially we got 10,000 pages of records just on, on one priest uh, John Gagan, who was the subject of our opening story. And uh, we were able to show that uh, the head of the Boston Archdiocese, Cardinal Bernard Law, and his predecessor, Cardinal Medeiros, knew that this particular priest had been abusing for children for uh, 30 years in six different parishes and had nevertheless allowed the abuse to continue. So uh, we had a much more detail. And then we got additional records showing that, uh, you know, there were up to uh, 90 priests just in the Boston Archdiocese who were abusers. Today, by the way, that number is up to 250. Uh, but in any event, uh, we were able to get uh, thousands of pages, as I put it, of records of the Boston Archdiocese, which showed that uh, there was a, um, a systemic problem at that point, at least within the Boston Archdiocese. We were not able to show that this was a, a systemic problem church churchwide. Although it's clear now that this is a this is a global phenomenon within the Catholic Church, uh, hmm. so so many people have pointed to issues with the LDS Church's helpline, saying that being staffed largely by attorneys, it's it's put under risk management division <clears throat> of the church. It's mainly right. to protect the church from liability. What reforms did some of your sources suggest for the system? 
Uh, you mean for the, the system in the in Yeah, the, to make it in the, more in the effective church. in the Mormon church, yeah. Well, um, you know, there were not uh, a whole lot of specific suggestions uh, for reform, but I mean, just as a as a basic matter, I mean, I think most clinicians and experts in child sex abuse will will agree, maybe not all, but I, I would certainly say probably most agree that, you know, child sex abuse uh, has a has a home in secret environments. I mean, in the Catholic Church, for instance, you know, we have there's an all male uh, clergy, which is in effect a secret society. Uh, you know, it's answerable only uh, to the bishop who sees his mission as protecting the church from scandal. So, so it's a it's a it's a it's a good place for child molesters and child predators to to hide. And uh, you know, just as a as a as a theoretical matter, you can make the same argument about the Mormon Church. There was a there was a secret process. Uh, for reporting uh, child sex abuse. I mean, one reform would be very simple, which is to uh, follow the letter of the law. Uh, in other words, most uh, of the mandatory child sex abuse reporting laws say that anyone with knowledge or belief uh, that child sex abuse or neglect is happening, these people are are the the number that the actually the specific people required to report can vary, but essentially they are required to immediately report to law enforcement or child protection services. I str- and in, in Arizona, that's what the law says, quote, immediately report, end quote. Uh, but the Mormon church says, no, you don't immediately report, you call the helpline. And uh, somebody at the helpline takes the call and somebody who enters the helpline decides whether it should be referred to an attorney. And if it is referred to an attorney, there's a conversation shrouded in secrecy between the attorney and the, uh, the church leader. And at some point, either the allegation of abuse gets reported or it does not. You know, in the meantime, uh, the victim is maybe continuing to be abused and the perpetrator might find may find out that someone has uh, dropped a dime on him or her, although it's usually a him and uh, either cajole, threaten the victim into not talking or or flee the state. You know, any number of things can happen during a delay. So one reform would be very simply to um, just call the police. Even if it comes through a confession, right? Well, um, you know, that's, a, that's a, a trickier issue, but I will say this, that there are states that grant the clergy penitent privilege, but not in cases of child sex abuse. Hmm. Tennessee would be one of those where there is a, an acknowledgement of the uh, clergy penitent privilege, but not when a child is being abused. Also, and I had kind of an interesting academic conversation with with Bill Maldon about this. He's the, uh, as I said, he's the attorney who represents the the church in the case in Arizona. And there have been some uh, law review articles written saying that uh, the clergy penitent privilege should be amended so that a uh, a bishop or anyone hearing a confession, whether it's a Catholic priest or a Mormon bishop, would be required to report an ongoing crime. In other words. Uh, the act of seeking repentance for a past bad act would remain confidential. But if the if the Mormon bishop or the priest uh, hears a confession in which it is revealed that, uh, you know, the crime is ongoing, then the clergy person would be required uh, to report that crime. That's how the the attorney client privilege works, by the way. Uh, so another reform would be, well, let's let's change the clergy penitent privilege to mirror uh, the attorney client privilege and not not give uh, so much leeway 
to the clergyman. I also should say that the uh, the, the clergy penitent privilege in uh, Arizona gives the clergy person the option of reporting or not reporting. It gives the clergy person person the 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 option to decide whether the information was received during a confession or not, and then gives that person the option to decide whether to report or not. So. Uh, the the attorney-client privilege, at least under Arizona law, is not a requirement mm-hmm. to keep information about child sex abuse secret. So, what is the status of the lawsuit from the three um, children or the the three people in the Arizona abusers case? Sure. Well, the the case will continue. the uh, The church has filed a motion uh, to have the case dismissed. And in this motion, the church argues that everything, the church says that the case, and I'm I'm quoting from the motion, uh, hinges entirely on the clergy penitent privilege. Um, But, um, you know, there's an argument about that. And I'm going to publish a story in the Associated Press probably tomorrow uh, saying that the the clergy penitent privilege uh, may not apply because Paul Adams posted the videos on the Internet. And he bragged about his abuse on, on social media. And he, after all, he confessed his abuse to federal agents. So, so the, the, um, the seal of confidentiality was, was breached by Paul Adams, by the, by the person who made the confession. So there's an argument, and this is an argument that was, this point was made to me by the uh, Cochise County attorney who's opened a criminal investigation uh, of the church. There's also an argument that Bishop Herod was required uh, to report the abuse in his capacity, uh, his professional capacity as a physician. So uh, there, you know, I think ultimately this question will be decided by a judge or, or a jury, but uh, it just seemed to me that if if the church says that this case is all about the clergy penitent privilege, the arguments could get quite interesting. So, do you know? Um, I guess recently a federal investigation about the Southern Baptist Convention over abuse. Is there a similar investigation on the horizon for the LDS Church? I don't know if there's one on the horizon. I mean, right now, the criminal investigation is, is being conducted by the Cochise County attorney. Uh, that's a very small office uh, with a very small staff. And um, I don't know whether it has the the the, the, uh, the manpower or the woman power uh, or the the capacity uh, to conduct a, a sweeping investigation of an organization as big and wealthy and powerful as the Mormon Church. Uh, so I don't know whether I have no indication that there's another investigation under another criminal investigation under the one being undertaken by the Cochise County attorney, Brian McIntyre. So if you had anything, if you had to do it over, is there anything you would do differently? In terms of like living my life or writing the story? <laughs> no, your story. <laughs> your, your life is off limits. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could have written more. I mean, you know, the story was uh, pushing 5,000 words, which for the Associated Press is a very, very long story. And I'm grateful that I had the space, but I, um, I could have written more. So. Spoken like every reporter I've ever exactly. known, right? So. <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> probably true. <laughs> uh, what response have you had to the article? Well, I, I've been deluged, frankly, with uh, email and Twitter DMs and, and every other form of communication, mostly from 
from from Mormons and former Mormons alike. And it seems that uh, everybody has a tale about child sex abuse not being reported in the Mormon church. I mean, I would say something like, I don't know, maybe maybe 10 percent of the communications I've received have come from supporters uh, of the church. But, you know, even the people who say that they're they're they believe in the church, they believe in church doctrine. You know, a lot of those people have also said, you know, something could be done to make this a better process and one that does more to protect children in the church. Uh, so I, I, I've been, like I say, deluged with uh, communications from from Mormons and ex-Mormons and non-Mormons alike, just uh, uh, saying that that something more should be done or could be done. Uh, and, and as I said before, you know, it's a, you know, before 1995, the church policy for church leaders was uh, just follow the local reporting laws. You know, that's it. Hmm. Uh, fairly, fairly simple. And then the policy of uh, the helpline was instituted in uh, 1995. And this this was a time of increasing vulnerability for organized religion when it came to lawsuits filed by victims of child sex abuse. This was a time when more of these lawsuits were, were being filed <clears throat> and juries were starting to award millions of dollars uh, for the victims. Uh, the other piece of this is that the Mormon church is particularly vulnerable when it comes to litigation, because unlike the Catholic church, which is, which is in a corporate sense, decentralized, I mean, in a, in a theological sense, it's very centralized, but in a corporate sense in the United States, church is divided into something like 300 different dioceses. Uh, so if you're an abuse victim in New York or an abuse victim in um you know, Amarillo, Texas, you know, you have to file against your local diocese and that diocese may have plenty of money or it may not have plenty of money. But the Mormon uh, church is, is organized as one corporate entity. So essentially, if you if you file a lawsuit against the Mormon church, you're looking at access to uh, billions of dollars. Yeah, really. since the church may have just one big stash of cash, right, of, of money. It, exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it, it may have more than one stack of cash, but it's all controlled <laughs> by by you know, the profit essentially. Yeah. The same entity. Uh -huh. So you yeah. can't really, you can't sue the Vatican. You have to sue this. That's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, there, there've been many attempts to sue the Vatican and, and to my knowledge, they've all failed. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Michael Resendiz, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, listen, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate the chance to be on your show. And uh, it's been great to meet you both. Appreciate. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Solid Tribune's free Mormonland newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next time on Mormonland. Land.